Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the podcast solving today's most pressing issues in the AI arthritis community. We invite you all to the table, where together we face the daily challenges of autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis. Every Sunday, join our fellow patient co-hosts as they lead discussions in the patient community, as well as consult with stakeholders worldwide to solve the problems that matter most. Whether you are a loved one, a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table. Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360. This is the official talk show for the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis, or AI Arthritis for short. And I have such an exciting day planned for all of us because I am not alone. I am one of many co-hosts today, and I am a person living with axial spondyloarthritis, and I'm going to be calling out different people to say hello. Let's start off with Deb. Hi there, everybody. I am Deb, and I am in Wisconsin, and I have rheumatoid arthritis, diagnosed at 13. All right. And hey, Rick. I'm Rick Phillips, and I live in central Indiana, and I have rheumatoid arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis. All right. And then we have Effie, who, a.k.a. Irene, right now, as I'm looking at her screen. (laughs) Hey, Effie. Hi, everyone. So I'm from Illinois, and I was diagnosed with juvenile idiopathic arthritis at 18. Right. And Patrice, hey there. Hi, Tiffany. My name is Patrice. I live in Northern California. I was originally diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, but currently I have an undifferentiated diagnosis. That's a mouthful. <laughs> it, it is a lot of the, a lot of ours are <laughs> mouthfuls. So we also we're not done yet. Hey there, Suze. Hi, I'm Suze. I live in Arlington, Virginia. I was diagnosed with polyarticular juvenile idiopathic arthritis when I was 14, but it behaves a lot more like adult onset rheumatoid arthritis now. Great, and certainly last but not least, hey Judy. Hey everyone, I'm Judy. I live in New South Wales, Australia, and I was diagnosed at 32 with rheumatoid arthritis. All right. Fantastic. Now that really is all. (laughs) We've got a whole group today, and I am actually tuning in from St. Louis, Missouri in the United States as well. And the reason we wanted to have so many of our co-hosts on today is because we want to focus on a very important topic In honor of World Arthritis Day, which is hosted every year on October 12th, and the misunderstanding around the word arthritis, or the A word, as we're calling it in this episode. So this is a topic that we tackle often in our own organization, and something that we all tackle often in our daily lives. We know that many of you living with these diseases have a lot of opinions, a lot of experiences, a lot of perspectives, as do we. So we are going to start off the conversation, but at the end, we're going to invite you all back to our new and improved AR Arthritis Voices online community, where we're going to continue the conversation with you. And it is opening on October 12th. So make sure that you find out how to tune in at the end. Going back to the topic at hand, we are going to focus on this because there's really a frustration among the people living with these diseases because of the word arthritis. And if you think about in history, you think about what arthritis means and in joint pain in particular, joint effect, there's so much more that goes to that. So before I even get more into the content of the show, I want to ask just generally our co-host and anyone who has an answer can can go ahead and, and throw out your answer here. Just thinking of the word arthritis right here, right now, What is the first thing that you think of when you think of that word? I think of my grandmother. From the time that I became aware, my grandmother had arthritis. And she was in her 50s and lived to her mid-80s. And through that entire time, she had arthritis. It became progressively worse because there really weren't treatments. There weren't joint 
surgeries and that sort of thing that she could take advantage of. And still today, I've had arthritis for 20 years. And still today, when I hear the word arthritis, I think of grandma. Yeah, definitely right. old person's disease for sure. Mm-hmm. I, I started the journey at 13, so I didn't have a whole lot prior to that, but it was grandmas and grandpas and things like that. So that was for sure what the scope was. Yeah, I never even used that word. If I'm trying to tell someone what I have, I immediately go to, I have a rheumatologic condition or something like that. I've always found I'd much rather have them not know what it is then have a word that they think they know, like arthritis, which is a complete, it does not capture what I have. So I just feel- I love that. I love that. How have I never gotten that from you, Suze? (laughs) Oh my God. Oh my God, I love it. (laughs) Judy, back to you. Sorry for cutting in. (laughs) I used to live with a foster family and I watched someone with arthritis. So it was hard seeing that as well. So I always thought an older person as well. So until I educated myself and then I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. So that was the first thing I wanted to do was educate myself. Mm -hmm. I think that's really interesting when we think about what we think about now is similar to, I know what I thought about just as a young person, like Rick said, you know, I remember everybody always saying that my grandma had arthritis. And so I considered it something that you get when you're older. And to be honest, my grandmother never really acted like it it bothered her that much. So I didn't really think of it as even being something that could be serious. But I know now that we're talking mainly osteoarthritis here when we're thinking about the aging type. And I know now that there are varying degrees of osteo as well, and that there's very serious levels, and we can't ignore that either. But it, it, it is. And even when I think of arthritis today, I don't know. I think for me, it's, it's evolved a little bit because I do know that there's more types. That's one thing that I can say that I think of differently. Anybody else have anything that they think of differently now, now that they're diagnosed? In my case, as I said, it was my grandmother, but as she lived, she always had osteoarthritis. But as she lived, you know, she increased her level of arthritis as she did anything. So she started off with osteoarthritis and because it sounded worse, then she had rheumatoid arthritis. And then because it sounded worse, she had idiopathic arthritis and her disease didn't change. It's just that she continued to reel them out in order for people to understand how much it hurt, which I never appreciated until, of course, I had rheumatoid arthritis. And then I came to understand just how badly it does hurt. And, you know, no wonder she was reeling those things out in order to gain more recognition of her position. That's a really great point. That that kind of goes back to what Suze just said about the terms. Does anybody else use different terms when explaining their conditions? Sometimes I say like an, it's an autoimmune disease, you know, autoimmune arthritis. Mm-hmm. And I feel once you say that, people are like, oh, well, what, what does that mean? What does autoimmune mean? And then you go into explaining, well, it's not typical arthritis. It's attacking my joints. It feels like it's an invader, but it's not, you know, stuff like that. So that's sometimes what I say to people when they ask me, what is juvenile arthritis or what is rheumatoid arthritis? Because like Suze mentioned, even though I was diagnosed with JIA, it does act like rheumatoid arthritis now that I'm 33. Mm -hmm. And I've talked to many rheumatologists and they're like, well, you know, you were diagnosed at 18, so typically it's rheumatoid arthritis. And then other people are like, well, you had symptoms starting at 16. So it's the other one. So I don't really know which way I'm going anyways. So that's why I tend to just (laughs) say the autoimmune aspect. Right, right. Yeah, I tend to do that as well. And I think that this is a really good opening because we want you, the listener, to also ask yourselves these questions. Whether you're a patient or any other stakeholder, you're just a person listening to this conversation that maybe you aren't diagnosed or affected personally. But what does that word mean to you? Because if we don't understand what it means to all people, people living with the diseases, the public, doctors, et cetera, then we can't really develop solutions 
in order to combat the misunderstanding. So we need to hear from all the stakeholder groups so we can come together with a consensus on how to deal with this. In saying that, the differentiation, that's really what this topic is focusing on. And what the work we do as an organization focuses heavily on is educating about the different types that exist so that we can help with general awareness, we can help combat misunderstandings, and we can also address a lot of issues that happen at the doctor's office. So I wanted to also throw this question out to everybody. If you think back on, think back in the initial, the initial doctor's visits, how many of you had a doctor dismiss that it could be arthritis related, if any? My symptoms showed up directly after a surgery at the age of 13. So they did tissue samples and blood work ahead of time. And then I was sent to a rheumatologist, again, 13 prior to them really, you know, having pediatric rheumatologists. So I already went in with intent of there is an issue. Yeah. So I was going for my yearly physical and I was 16 at the time when I started experiencing like really vague symptoms to the point when they were like, oh, it's just the typical teenage experience, growing pains, like, you know, night sweats, fatigue, sleeping after school for a couple hours. Maybe you're just busy waking up at 6 a.m. every day to catch the bus, you know? So there was just like little things like that that weren't caught on right away until I started experiencing more pain every day and then swelling in my wrist and then my knee. But those came and went as well. So I thought I had just injured myself because I was active. I played district sports and all this other stuff. So it's like, I didn't really know at the time until I started having physical changes in my knuckles that I only noticed. And then when I showed it to the pediatrician, she's like, I'll forward you to a rheumatologist. And that was, it took like two to three years, you know? So I think for me, my disease was manifesting probably from, if I can remember back from fifth grade, you know, cause I was experiencing weird symptoms from then. So, yeah. I've always felt a little guilty because my onset I always hear that kind of story, Effie, like every most of the people I interact with, it's like things that kept happening and it was so hard to figure out. And mine was like someone flipped a switch. It took three weeks. It started with one knee. I was dismissed by the orthopod who looked at that knee. He drained it, drained like a pint of fluid out of it, shot it full of cortisone, sent me home. And when I showed up again with both knees like that, he still only looked at the right knee still thinking it was orthopedic. But then we jumped ship, went to my pediatrician and it wasn't this theatrical, but I was 14. So it's the way I remember it. I swear to God, she looked at me from the doorway and was like, you have JIA or JRA. And she called the pediatric rheumatologist and off we went. So it was like quick. So my story is a little bit different. I have had OA for 35 years in my left knee. And nine years ago, the initial symptoms were, you know, like everybody else or similar to people that I have had, you know, the achiness and, and, you know, just feeling not at my best and had the blood work done. And when, and when I went into the rheumatologist's office and he said, well, you have rheumatoid arthritis. And it's like, how can that be? Because the pain that I have from my OA is completely different than what I have for whatever disease I have right now. Rheumatoid arthritis never even factored into my brain. I thought I just had, you know, something wrong with my bones and my joints. You know, with me, like Effie, I was very athletic and I was kickboxing. I was playing volleyball, softball, and I didn't understand. Nobody actually considered arthritis. It was what's wrong with her. She has fatigue. She has low grade fevers. I was having costochondritis which is an inflammation of the connective tissues between your ribs. And that was also causing issues with breathing a little bit. Everything for me was focused on the systemic. And even though I would say, well, then why do I have this pain in my foot? And then now it's the same thing is in my finger and the same thing is in my wrist and the same thing is in my elbow. And they just kept saying, well, you had to have injured yourself playing sports or at the gym they would not associate the two. And this was back in 2007, 2008. So I just wanted to date that. But I wanted to bring that up too, because I think it's interesting that there's a few of us on the call, but you hear the different stories we all have. 
about our experiences with the doctor. And while some are diagnosed early, I know, Suze, you've done a lot of work <laughs> in, in the whole delay in diagnostic factors. And I just wanted to know, could you just give the, the listeners a little bit of an overview of just how important it is to make sure that our diseases are recognized fully and early? Yeah. So most of what I've focused on has been RA, but I think it's broadly kind of transferable across other diseases. It's actually now going through sort of a, a re-review to maybe redefine it, but there's what they call a window of opportunity because our damage starts right away. And the scariest part of that is what if you, like all of you were saying, what if you were lingering from injury to injury and you don't even get to a doctor until you've had disease for X number of years or X number of months, your damage curve could already have started. And what we know or what the research shows is that if you can get in with like a full complement of whatever therapy will work, you can really right the ship and prevent some of that permanent damage. So diagnosis is sort of the linchpin for everything. If you do not get your diagnosis promptly and get the right one, it really determines a lot about your outcomes for the, the rest of your life. And then what we hear, which kind of strays outside of diagnosis, but it's the same issue. This is why access to therapy is so important because then every time you go through a period without good therapy, you're going back to that sort of, I call it like the damage curve. And Tiffany, you know, my biggest, like the thing that just drives me the most crazy and what I've spent a lot of my energy on is the issue of lab tests and diagnosis. There is not a lab test that is required for RA or JIA or several other of these arthropathies. There's not, it's not required, but that is just a sort of colossal area of confusion for clinicians, especially when they're not rheumatologists or internal med specialists. And so the number of people just I personally have interacted with who say, well, yeah, I'm swollen and I can't move, but my blood tests were negative. And I have to sort of restrain myself. I'm, I'm going to need the phone number of whoever you talk to. Like, it's just, that is not how this works. And that to me, if we could figure out how to fix that one piece I wonder how far we could go. I mean, the diagnostic criteria is one or more swollen joints for six weeks or longer that doesn't have another etiology behind it. It's not an injury. That's not a virus. There's my soapbox. <laughs> no, that's a great, that's a good soapbox to be on. One of my best friends, her mother had rheumatoid arthritis pretty severely, and she has been experiencing symptoms for a while now. And she asked me about going to the doctor and she went and did all of her blood work. This was just a couple months ago. And she text messaged me, said, well, I don't have rheumatoid arthritis. My blood work all came back normal. <laughs> and I just said, get to a rheumatologist right now. But I think that leads us really into the whole point about the different components of our disease and the different treatments and that we have to think about our diseases as, as full body and I think one of the issues that people are having when we think of arthritis, I've heard, I, I know, Judy, you've mentioned this as well, that sometimes it seems like the treatments that they're giving us is targeting arthritis only and not necessarily the other things. So do you want to speak a little bit about that, Judy? Yes, the other symptoms as well. And there could be depression as well. And it just feels like they target the arthritis, but there's nothing to treat the other symptoms like fatigue and nausea, everything that comes with it. You know, my doctor said something I thought was very profound. He said, arthritis is a disease with a thousand front doors and one destination. And in fact, that's kind of the way it is. We have so many different things that could point to arthritis, inflammatory arthritis, that doesn't at first appear to be arthritis. And I just find that so fascinating. I agree. One thing I want to piggyback with kind of what Suze was talking about as far as early diagnosis and all of those things, you and I are very similar in age. We were diagnosed at a very similar age as well. And back in the day, we were put to adult rheumatologists and their knowledge levels, it's very different and skewed. And we were when we were officially diagnosed, 
it was pre-biologic, pre-major medication. So I'm to the point where I'm fixing what the first 20 years messed up. And yeah, as I sit here right now, after having my second foot reconstruction surgery from 38 years of having this disease, it's just like, even like your little blip in time, early diagnosis when biologics are out there, it's so different than even when we were, you know, back in the day, it wasn't there. So these medications are life-changing as far as where my disease is at this point. The destruction has halted over the years or very little difference since biologics. But prior to biologics, I, I have I'm probably not a very, it was kind of a crapshoot and I don't, that's kind of probably the wrong term, but as far as- That's okay. You, know, you can say crap. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. We'll all say it together. One, two, three. Crap. crap. <laughs> there. Right. Yeah. It was a crapshoot as far as what meds you were on and what was working and what was working well enough. We were kind of really in the same boat. And I think you and I have very similar destruction too, because of it. You know, I was diagnosed in 2000 and I was 48. It was so wonderful, not not being diagnosed was wonderful, but the way the diagnosis worked, I went to my endocrinologist. My endocrinologist said, we'll do some blood work, got it back, sent me to a rheumatologist. I walked in, the rheumatologist said, you have rheumatoid arthritis. You'll use methotrexate for six months. You'll fail. You'll be on a biologic and your life will be better. It was not a discussion of, oh, we're going to try this or try that or do this or or be that. It was straightforward. I mean, it the appointment took less than 10 minutes. And it was just bam, bam, bam. This is what we're going to do. And this is how it's going to turn out. And, and that was exactly the path that was followed. It, it was amazing. There's something I wanted to add to that as, as we're talking about treatments. We're going to transition here into I'm going to ask everybody a few questions or, or like responses to some statements that we've all heard before. But something about the treatments that I think we also have to point out. Yes, it is true that these were originally developed primarily rheumatoid arthritis, right? When you think back in the late 1990s, but they have proven that they also work for other indications. I was originally diagnosed rheumatoid arthritis. We've realized now that's not what I have. It's axial spondyloarthritis, but I can tell you that the medications, while the initial direction for the research was to focus on the joints and to focus on destruction, there's been a lot of work in clinical trials in particular to also measure fatigue and to, to measure other levels. And so I don't know that all patients, when they're thinking about, well, the arthritis is, is only one component, true. And the treatments are only targeting that. Not necessarily true. So I just want to make that clear that researchers have been listening to us and they know that the other components of the larger disease are also important to us. And we've mentioned Omeract a million times on the show, the outcome measures in rheumatology. And that's just a perfect example of always working on research with patients to identify domains that are important to us. And then based on learning about those, that's where the research and the clinical trials are guided. And so I, I wanted to make that clear as well to those who are listening I want to toggle to sort of the, the meat of our conversation here, which is really about these public misunderstandings and how that goes into the patient frustrations, because we do get very frustrated. And I have a couple sentences here that I pulled from some of the preliminary conversations we've all had, and I just wanted to know what your thoughts are. And, and again, if you're listening, think about this for yourself as well. When somebody says, I have arthritis too in my fill in the blank. What comes to mind? When someone says to you they have arthritis, I've had people tell me like, oh, I have arthritis in my hands or something like that. And I'm like, okay. A lot of people assume like if they have an ache or a pain because I've had some friends who are like, oh my God, I'm, I'm, I woke up feeling pain here and there. Do I have rheumatoid arthritis? No, no, I don't think you do, <laughs> you know, but people get freaked out once they find out what your symptoms are and then they start to think that their aches and pains are autoimmune arthritis or autoinflammatory arthritis. And, you know, I don't know what everyone else has to add, but I'll come back to my other thoughts. But 
Yeah. So I do a lot of, or I did before COVID, a lot of community events where I represent people that have arthritis or autoimmune diseases. And when people ask me, well, what do you have? And I would tell them, and the first thing they would say is, look at my hand. Do I have arthritis? <laughs> oh my. <laughs> so. So as far as frustration goes, how many of you feel at all frustrated if somebody says, you know, well, I have that too. I know I personally get frustrated because I feel like it's my opportunity to educate and say, well, this is a different type. What you're talking about is localized, is is not part of an autoimmune disease. How do you all feel that that response? Frustrated. <laughs> The same. Yes. Want to educate. Yeah, exactly, Judy. You're right. I only feel frustrated if they haven't seen a doctor or if they aren't under the care of a rheumatologist. I always say, what does your rheumatologist say about that? And they'll say, well, I've never seen a rheumatologist or I was going to raise it with my family care doctor when I saw him. I said, well, that's great. But you know, A rheumatologist really is the person who diagnoses arthritis. And that's where you ought to take that. Oh, I don't want to go see a rheumatologist. Well, you know, then you really have to wonder. Good point. I agree with everything that Rick's been saying, that they should see a rheumatologist, definitely. And then, like you said, that some will say that they don't want to see a rheumatologist, but they're the ones they need to see to be properly diagnosed. That's a really important point to bring up is that one of the things that we've said a lot on the show is everybody's the public before they're our patient. That's just very true because if you aren't versed and you aren't familiar, you may not even know you're supposed to go to a rheumatologist. And part of the problem with delayed diagnosis is lack of education. And that's one of the reasons that we're doing this today and having this conversation because um, we need also the public to understand the different types. When it's, you know, it, if you're feeling this, go to a doctor. <laughs> Don't assume that it's an injury or something like what happened to me or others. What about, we've all heard this, but you look great. Okay, so I've got a, I, exactly. Um, so being diagnosed at 13. Um, oh, yeah. Everyone's, everyone look at me, but you look great. You're, I mean, you're just a kid. And then you just don't know. And then you look ahead to where I am now. So now I am older. <laughs> and it's it's like, well, you still look great, but what do you do with that? For when it was inappropriate to have arthritis when I was younger. And of course, I mean, it's the invisible disease. You don't see it outwardly, although symptomatically I did. I remember being freshman in high school and I never wore shorts or skirts because my knees were like huge footballs. I mean, they were huge. So I never wore shorts. So that was kind of like my token thing, but no one noticed that. It was mental for me. And I got special permission in high school to use the elevator to go upstairs. But did I? No. My mom would ask, did you use the elevator to go to your class upstairs on the third floor? And yes, mom, I did. No, I didn't. I just didn't want her making a big deal of it, you know? And now that I am that age and I look older, (laughs) people think, oh, well, okay, she's got arthritis, but they still think osteoarthritis. Typically, they don't think the autoimmune disease. Until I say rheumatoid arthritis, that's a catchy enough word or phrase now. It's more publicized than axial or ankylosing spondylitis or those type of diseases that don't get as much attention. Like people recognize rheumatoid arthritis. They don't know what it means, but they may recognize it. Mm -hmm. You know, I have to speak on behalf of, of the Stills disease community because I hear a lot of the word arthritis and the frustrations associated with that. And it's just an interesting perspective when, when you compare what you're saying, Deb in Stills disease, you have adult onset, which is 16 years or older, but then the juvenile version is systemic juvenile idiopathic arthritis, formerly systemic JRA, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. And recently it is now becoming mainstream to use the term Stills disease for the whole disease continuum. And I know that that makes people who have the juvenile version happy because they are trying to move away from the word arthritis 
as well, because they get frustrated that when people hear the word that they're dismissing it. And for their case, they will often go into a hospital situation and right in front of them, you'll hear them say the doctors and the nurses are look are Googling Stills disease, Holy which cow. is just terrible. Wow. Can you even imagine being in the emergency room and having the, I've heard this from numerous people. They'll go into a search and you'll see type of rheumatoid arthritis. And that's not accurate, but that stems from the old systemic juvenile rheumatoid arthritis label. And, and so again, we're dealing with decades of history. So it's, it's, it's history of what was said prior. It's history of our own knowledge of the word, our own associations. If we've never lived with it, we remember grandma. We've all, we've all said that. So we're dealing with a lot of layers here. That, sure. that we have to have to go through. And, you know, Effie, you mentioned one, and I think this is very um, telling when if, if people don't really know there are different variations of arthritis. If somebody says, wait, there's there are a hundred different types of arthritis. When somebody says that, that I mean, that definitely shows that they don't realize not, let alone there's two or there's three. But did you want to speak a little bit on that, Effie? Yeah. I mean, even when someone asks me what are the 100 different types of arthritis, I can't necessarily answer them either because, again, I'm not a rheumatologist. I'm not a professional, you know, but I know that is something that confuses a lot of people because with arthritis and compared to other diseases, you know, let's say, for example, like multiple sclerosis or even cancer, like for some reason, like I've picked up on when someone says cancer, a lot of people tend to like know that there's different types of cancer. Right. But then when you say that there's different types of arthritis, a lot of people get confused. They're like, really? They don't know. And what does that boil down to? Why do people know about other conditions and illnesses, but they don't know much about the arthritis? That is brilliant, Effie. I, yeah, that is a, a great way to liken it. I like that a lot. And it's along the lines of what Sue's you were talking about with frustration about people understanding certain other conditions or that there's variations, this is a great opportunity to mention that point. I think it's just, and I don't mean to sound sour grapes, and I know among us, we also have other comorbidities, so I don't want to single anyone's disease out, but why is it that not just the medical community, but the public seems to have a better understanding of some pretty specific details about things like diabetes? I think it's become kind of commonplace that people are aware of increased heart risk with diabetes, or we're very aware of asthma and the risks of poor air quality, or MS was just mentioned. I mean, I think there's just a growing sort of public awareness, and I can't figure out how we crack that code with our diseases. And maybe it goes back to what Effie was just saying. Maybe it is because it's just such a complicated mess of diseases that we can't even speak about it succinctly because it's too big and too messy. But man, I wish we could unlock some of those codes because some other diseases have really figured it out. I'm just going to ask quickly for, for Rick to weigh in as somebody who lives with diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, diabetes, you have a, a blog about it. Do you have any thoughts behind what Sue's just said? Three quick things. When people ask me what kind of arthritis I have, I say it's duck soup arthritis. That is... <laughs> Anything you want to attribute to it, uh, uh, you can toss in there. With type 1 diabetes, it's a big row in the diabetes community. You probably don't know that there are 14 types of diabetes. We talk about three of them publicly, gestational type 1 and type 2. And it's also a big issue in the type 1 community because it's a different front door to diabetes. It's a autoimmune diabetes as opposed to a lack of the ability to use insulin that the body produces. So I think that the separation, the striving for the separation is universal. I think it goes to all disease types. And, you know, if you really want to get the diabetes community in a row, ask five people which is worse, type one or type two. Virtual fistfights break out over that. But to Sue's point, why is it that we understand about heart disease and blindness and kidney failure when it comes to diabetes is that we in the diabetes community for years have taken that on as our mission. 
because diabetes looks like something that you can ignore until you can't. It has lessened the death rate. It has increased our lives because we have convinced people that unless you take care of your diabetes, what happens? You go blind, you have kidney disease, and you die of a heart attack. And guess what? You do that in 20 years. That's the way doctors talk to us about diabetes from the moment we're diagnosed. Even so much that people who have diabetes in their 80s still want to control it so tightly so as to not create those issues. And the American Diabetes Association has said, look, you do not need to control it this tightly when you're that age. You're more likely to die from a low blood sugar than you are kidney disease if you don't already have it. I also want to mention another point. You know how we were all saying not too long ago in this conversation, like everyone's like, well, I have that too. And I think with arthritis, as we age, everyone is going to have an ache, aches and pains. Everyone mm-hmm. is going to have some type of maybe even generalized arthritis, right? right. My acupuncturist, for instance, is like, I have arthritis in my knee because he used to play rugby when he was in his 20s, but now he's in his 60s. So I think because everyone experiences some form of it, that's why a lot of people cannot differentiate between like ours and then others, mm-hmm. you know, because not everyone goes blind, unfortunately. Not everyone is diagnosed with cancer or other diseases. So arthritis is a universal disease, whether we know it or not, in various respects. So if I could just circle back to what Sue said, does anybody, or at least in my own opinion, I feel like certain other diseases get more exposure than arthritis does, but that's just me. I know if you look at federal funding, it's pretty amazing what the slice we get. The Arthritis Foundation And I think Creaky Joints and other groups have worked hard on trying to up that, but it's a pretty, it's pretty paltry compared to lots of other diseases. I wanted to pull out a couple of the points that came up that Rick said, and I loved the term you said, striving for the separation. I I think that's exactly what this whole episode is about is understanding like what Effie said is one of the reasons that it's so messy, which is what Sue said. So I'm kind of typing what everyone kind of said here, but we've got this complication of being messy. And based on our history and what we know, we've realized that everybody has some story of they know somebody or something about arthritis. Then I know this came up before when we were pre-discussing this is that you've got products that are out there that are labeled for arthritis and there are these over the counter that really is not going to help. I know the pain that I'm having in my lower back from the spondyloarthritis. And so having that whole mismatch of things under one umbrella is definitely one of the, the biggest issues. And I think striving for that separation that is working somewhat in the diabetes community is a great example of where we need to be to unravel this mess. I did want to add to the hundred different types of arthritis. Another issue with that, again, we're going back to people being really frustrated with the word arthritis. If you ask a person with lupus, they will tell you they do not have a type of arthritis. They're very adamant about that. And so will the foundations that are associated with lupus. The autoimmune arthritis is a component of the autoimmune disease. And that's really how we at our organization say it. You know, we, we are not classifying anything. We're saying this is the type of arthritis associated with this disease. So you also have this kind of battle among disease groups. And I mentioned stills before too, but you've got this battle among disease groups saying, well, that's not, we don't have a type of arthritis. So then you've get the verbiage in as well. The one thing I would say is as far as, you know, looking at the hundred different types of arthritis, that comment, like naming them, like Effie was saying, if somebody would ask you to start naming them, I can easily name the autoimmune versions of arthritis because that's what AI arthritis is all about. So I can name those off the top of my head. So, you know, but as far as all the other specific ones, you know, that get a little bit more lost in translation. But I know what you're saying, teasing these things out. And I mean, it's been years, Tiffany, that we've been talking about it and we keep trying to talk about the distinction and Sue's. And I mean, most of you on the call here, we've all talked about this. And I know we're always trying to educate 
as much as we can, as much as people will let us. I think that is a good point too, because there's people that just don't want, they dismiss what we're talking about. And, and that's okay too. They're not ready to hear it. Mm-hmm. The last sentence that I wanted to focus on, because it's going to lead us into sort of the last real part of a discussion that, that we wanted to have is a few of you listed when we did this preliminary questionnaire was when people say, well, you can't die from arthritis. Who wants to talk a little bit about that sentence? You might not die from arthritis, but we've got to be treated for it every day. I hear that all the time. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of a little bit frustrating to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I say nobody dies from diabetes. They die from heart failure, kidney failure, massive internal organ disease. But almost nobody has listed on their death certificate diabetes. That really is not a classification of death. So there are a lot of diseases out there that are way bad that you don't die from. A lot of times side effects from medications and, you know, the disease itself can cause other issues, right? Like with RA, they say the heart, Mm -hmm. you know. So it's just like underlying stuff there that usually can cause death. And even if you don't treat the disease properly and you have high amounts of inflammation in your body, it can cause things to happen as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Patrice and Deb and I, from attending ULAR, the European League Against Rheumatism, the scientific convention this past June of 2020, you have to date it depending on when you're listening, there was a lot on cardiovascular. And it was not just, you know, it was rheumatoid arthritis. It was psoriatic. It was spondyloarthritis. It was everywhere. And it was, again, there was a lot of talk about these diseases are full body. And that's the first time we really were hearing it, but they even redid the guidelines for the treatments for rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis Mm -hmm. specifically to include that they are complex individualized diseases. And we were like, (laughs) we were excited when we saw that (laughs) because the three of us were like the doing our happy dances right there. We're like, (laughs) we're being acknowledged. Yes. Oh my gosh. So this really leads us into our final big discussion point here. And that is people are frustrated about the lack of seriousness around the word arthritis, and as particular as it relates to having full body diseases, autoimmune diseases, or auto-inflammatory diseases, and this whole, it's not a full body disease. And it, it really stems a lot from what you were saying too, Effie, with that, with the, you can't die from arthritis in this conversation we just had. There's a lot of very passionate people out there that are making strides and trying to think of ways that we can change this. We've mentioned education, Another one is name changing. So there is in the stills community, I've already mentioned that there was kind of a push to remove the arthritis from the juvenile version that hopefully is going to be alleviated a bit by having the continuum of stills disease. But now people have to know what stills disease is and not Google it. And then we also in psoriatic arthritis, there was not a name change. But there was a change to the umbrella term. It is now called psoriatic disease as an umbrella. And everything under that then falls under psoriatic disease. So psoriatic arthritis, psoriasis, pustular psoriasis, all of that is now considered psoriatic disease. But in order to do that, the first thing you have to do is you must have a united global consensus of organizations and professional groups to even begin something along this line. So I wanted to just throw this topic out there and gather anybody's thoughts or perceptions about the word arthritis and the potential for any type of name change. Effie, I know that you've had some conversations too, or you've been privy to some conversations in the community about the word arthritis and some thoughts about what can we do about it with the name changes. I feel like people need to realize the bigger picture and how much dollars would go into like rebranding things and like commercials. And when all that money and effort can go into like research and finding medicines that actually work and put people into remission or cures, quote unquote, that is what's really needed. 
I don't think people are are going to ever really understand what truly is arthritis. And I don't I don't know if there is going to be ever an answer. So, I mean, that's just my take. I think like some people will know and some people won't. And that's just what it is, you know. And I think maybe as a community, we're going to have to accept that because even with people in other areas that I talk to who don't have arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis, whatever else, they find that some people get it, some people don't. And that's just how it is with everything in life. You know what I mean? Like if you're not a parent, you don't have a child, you don't know what it is like it's like to be a, a parent, you know? You're just going to have to find a middle ground and try to keep going after what is really important. I think that's a really, really valid point. Our perspective on it as, a, as an organization has just kind of always been if, if you would like to um, call your disease whatever you want to call it, do it. <laughs> whatever works for you, do it. But when it comes to sort of that global bigger picture, the realization, as as I mentioned earlier, is the first step to any type of change, like even juvenile rheumatoid arthritis going to juvenile idiopathic arthritis, it didn't just spur because a couple organizations came together and said, we need this to happen. It, It has to be a global unified movement to do this. And so when I mentioned the psoriatic disease, for example, that was not done by one country. That that was a, a, a coalition of psoriatic groups that came together and made that happen. Because when you get that going, then you also have to figure out, is it going to change the disease codes? Are we going to have to go in and, and alter where those, those go under diagnostic? And that's an international disease code classifications we're, we're speaking of. So it goes a lot deeper. I think if anything that uh, we need to remember that what Effie said, the people are, there's always going to be people that don't quite understand. And probably the best solution and the best use of dollars and energy is really relies in good old fashioned education and doing what, what we can, knowing that it's it, we're never going to reach all people. One thing that Effie just, I can't believe I haven't thought of this until now, but you just made me think about it. I don't know who else would have been involved in AJAO. So it was the American Juvenile Arthritis Organization. It was separate from the AF, but related. We had a rally on Capitol Hill in the year 2000 because the Children's Health Act was passed. And I might butcher this, but I'll, I'll confirm after we're done that it was the first time childhood arthritis had ever been codified in legislation, period. You can think of it this way. They hadn't been recognized in legislation. And so when you're trying to go get funding appropriations and get policies made, you didn't have anything to, that wasn't, it didn't exist legislatively. And so it can feel like, yeah, we want to change a name. But what you said just now, Tiffany, about like, then what about your billing codes and your diagnostic codes and all of the sequela and how we do clinical trials? And like, it is not small. It's a to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, think of the loss of data. I mean, loss of data. That's if, right. If you just if you just go back and look at the surveys or the codes that were plugged in that are now being tracked for arthritis, if suddenly some portion of it were separated, virtually all the data before some point would be invalidated. It, it would be wiped out because it wouldn't mean the same as it means now. And at some point going back, you probably could not convert it. You know, maybe you could convert it for for five years back, but probably not 10. That's an excellent point. I know we have also talked to some researchers about this as well, and them saying things like, well, gosh, our research projects take four, five, six years. And what are we going to do? Change everything that we've we've put forth in these surveys and in and the data collection and the analysis because it, it's just such a big deal and and so I, I think that's just a great point and then what Effie said as well when you think about we've got the arthritis Foundation in the United States you arthritis New Zealand arthritis Australia you have the National Rheumatoid Arthritis Society in the UK all of these people, and all of their publications and all of their their trademarks and copyrights and 
materials and brochures. I mean, it just, if I were a nonprofit and had to deal with that, I mean, we are a nonprofit, but if that came and we had to put out money we don't have to redesign our whole website, to reprint all of our materials, I mean, we'd go under. So that's why it needs to be a global consensus. As we we wrap up, which we could talk about this topic forever, I just wanted to also throw out that we talked about these public misunderstandings and obviously the frustrations, that equals an emotional toll. It, it just, it does. We, we've all experienced feeling like we're misunderstood and it, it can affect us really personal. And I just wanted to just throw it back out to everybody. You know, if you were going to give any advice or talk a little bit about how the emotional factor is brought into this, what would you like to say on that point? I would say resilience is everything and you should do things that will build your resilience. You know, what will build your resilience? Well, not hiding it. I think we get stronger when we don't hide it. I think that's a muscle that we use. We either use it or we lose it. I think that surrounding ourselves with positive people is something that's very important. And personally, I think understanding that there's a time to ask for help and there's a time to give help. I'm so reminded of the Bob Dylan song so many times where he talks about, may you always give help and may you always seek help when it's needed. And that's so important, I think. We need to understand that there's a time for both. Yeah, mine is kind of twofold. I'm a firm believer in educating yourself about your disease. There is a lot of information out. There's a lot of misinformation, but you know, maybe um, finding uh, organizations like us that that deal with this a lot. And the other thing is, for me, because I don't have a lot of support in my life for what I go through. But I have found, because I volunteer for several other nonprofits as well as this one, I have have had quite the wide network of friends and colleagues. And it's just re- so very reassuring for me to know that I can call them, text them, ask them a question. So for me, the, the network of people that are in my life has just been wonderful for me. I'm very much like Patrice. When I was first diagnosed, I looked for organisations that I could turn to for advice and support and information. And this organisation was one of them, the very first that I looked for, and the International Pain Foundation as well. So I'm happy that I did that. I think I would echo almost everything everyone else has said. It takes me back to a comment from before about when we talked about you look fine, but you look fine. And for me, that didn't bother me, that statement, as much as what that meant. Because in context, it meant, depending on the situation, therefore, at the Kmart pharmacy, when I was 15 in an excruciating pain, I needed to give up my seat for the 75-year-old person waiting for his meds. And that kind of stuff would just it made me angry. I mean, and I'm not a very angry person, but I I had a lot of, I was really pretty mad about the state of the world because why do I have to give up my seat? He looks healthy. I'm the one in pain. And the only thing that saved me was meeting all of you wonderful humans and getting involved in all the ways I've gotten involved, making sure my voice was heard, trying to change whatever I could change and improve whatever I could improve. And now it really, maybe that's age, but now that does kind of roll off of me because it still happens, even though I'm doing pretty well now, there's still those things that, why can't she hold the door open? Why isn't she offering to take my heavy plate or whatever it is? And now that can kind of roll because I have my community to come talk to. And kind of leading into what Suze was saying and everyone else, you guys, what you shared, you know, you said it beautifully as well. I, I agree with every one of you, but You know, I think it's important to also know that you can't stop people from voicing their opinions or saying certain things, right? So like we have talked about, if someone does say like, oh, you're too young for arthritis or you look great. A lot of times people don't mean bad. They do mean well, but people do get uncomfortable with 
talking about disease, illness, death. These are just topics that a lot of people don't know how to handle, you know? So when they are hearing that you don't feel well, they, you know, what, what is the person going to say? They're going to be like, well, you look great. You know, like sometimes people are just trying to lift you up, but they don't really know how. And so that's something to take into consideration that not everyone is coming from a bad place. Now, I'm sure there are some people who say things and it's disrespectful, rude, whatever. And that's kind of when you need to look within and not let it try to get to you to the point where it makes you physically ill or emotionally sick, you know, because I, you know, we are all human beings and we can get sensitive to those things. But when you do, you have to realize that you're impacting yourself and your own health. Yeah. I live in a 55 and over community and my residents usually have no filter. <laughs> so <laughs> when I tell them I have arthritis, it's just like everybody else, the whole topic of this podcast. So, you know, I hear all the comments because, you know, you're dealing with people in their seventies and eighties and sometimes upwards into nineties. And of course they have their own views and their own opinions and don't kind of really think outside the box, but that's just kind of on. (laughs) That's just on a funny side note. (laughs) That's a great way to wrap this up is making sure that we all remember that, that, you know, everybody is going to have their opinions. And I think that as we move forward, and again, as we mentioned at the very beginning here, the purpose of putting this conversation on the table was so many people living with these diseases and inviting more people to living with these diseases to share your experiences and perspectives regarding the word arthritis and then inviting other stakeholders also, I mean, public, family, doctors, and then we all can talk about how we can create brainstorm ways to work on this problem knowing it's never quite going to be solved. But I think we brought up a lot of points today that we we can build on. One of the things that I wanted to do before we wrapped up is we've got a few people on this call who we can find in other locations here. So I know we've got Rick and Judy and Effie and Suze. You all have other organizations. And I'd like to just take a moment where you could tell people where they can find you. Judy, why don't we start with you? You can find me at United Advocacy on Twitter and at United Advocacy Australia on Facebook and on Instagram at United Advocacy or United Advocacy Australia. Awesome. Just search either of those terms and you should find me there. Okay. And we'll find you. Great. Rick. You can find me at radiabetes.com. That's uh, my personal website. And I also blog at two health union sites, ankylosingspondylitis.net. That's one word, and rheumatoidarthritis.net, also rheumatoid arthritis, one word, both at uh, Health Union. Great. And Effie. Yeah, you guys can find me over on my blog at Rising Above RA and also the same name on Twitter and Instagram. And I also am on YouTube. I post some content here and there, and you can find me under the name RA and myself. Wonderful. And Suze, did you want to tell us a little bit about where they can find you on your your newer adventure here? Newer adventure. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll share a couple things. Um, okay. The thing I founded to focus on primarily patient engagement in clinical education, but I also work in research in other areas, is called EXPECT where patient participation is the expectation and not the exception. I am not a marketer, please forgive me, but it's at www.expect with two P's for patientpartnership.net. I also serve as an advisor to the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine. They are focused exclusively on diagnostic error, which all of us have either experienced or we know 200 people that have. So it's a good place for resources and to, you can submit your error story that they do great work. And then one thing, and Tiffany, I can't remember if I've said this on the other podcasts, but one of my partners in crime and continuing medical ed is a shop called Go Factor X, G-O Factor, F-A-C-T-O-R-X. It's a CME creator. They create continuing medical ed content. But one of the very cool things they do is they have RA, or it would account for any of the diseases we've talked about, simulation gloves that mimic stiffness and inability to move in your hands. And he's actually established a lending library now. And so if you were having 
an event or even if like you're starting a new job and you're like, I really need you to know what this is like, you can go to that website and rent these gloves for free. It's really cool. So just thought I would share that. <laughs> oh, yes, that is that is new information. Yes, so <laughs> I've been withholding. <laughs> you have. So there so and then with myself and Deb and Patrice, you can always find us on our social media sites at IFAI Arthritis, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you can find all of us as we come back to the new and upgraded online community called AI Arthritis Voices. And we will all be there to continue this conversation in addition to all of the conversations that we have on future talk show episodes. So please make sure that you go to AIarthritis.org backslash AI Arthritis Voices, and there you'll be able to register and be ready to join us when we go live on that site on World Arthritis Day, October 12th, 2020. So I want to again thank all of our co-hosts for coming together on this very important conversation. As we always say, we need everybody at the table so that together we can change the stories of tomorrow. So thank you all so much. This has been fantastic. AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.aiarthritis.org. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI Arthritis news and events. 